That's exactly where we left off in the story of Jonah. Salvation belongs to our God. In Jonah chapter 2, that's where Jonah finishes up in his discussion or his prayer, his psalm that he gives to God. And he says, salvation belongs to our God. And he's going to be given the opportunity to do exactly what that song said, to allow the nations to rejoice and be glad, specifically for him, Nineveh and Assyria. And there is that dynamic in which if salvation belongs to God, and we belong to God because of the salvation that's within us, and we are his child, thinking about the fact that salvation goes forward and God's plan for salvation to go forward is through us. And that is the desire that he has, and that is the plan that he has established, that we are the, we are the channel through which God is going to use to allow the nations to rejoice, to allow the nations to be glad. They're living in sin, they're wallowing in self-pity and frustration and anger and evil. And yet salvation from our God is going to be used and, and brought to our coworkers and our friends and our families and all around us and the nations around the world through Christians, through believers. And that is, that is as we go into Jonah 3, there's a dynamic in which that's one of the, the themes that, that carries through, that salvation belongs to our God. The captain saw it in chapter 1. The people, the, the sailors saw it. Jonah recognized it in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we're going to see the Ninevites recognizing that, that this is where deliverance comes from. Now, I don't know how many of you are like me or have had this experience growing up uh, at some point in your life. Maybe you went to your grandparents' house or you went to a relative's house and you had the opportunity, you don't get to maybe see the cousins or the, the other siblings are with you and you, you get the opportunity to play. And as you're playing, maybe things get a little bit out of hand. And as you're playing, you know, the ball goes through the window or the lamp gets knocked off the table and you know at that point, you're going to have to face the wrath of grandpa or the, the wrath of Uncle Tommy or whoever the, the uncle is, you know, and, and you're not sure how to go about it. So if, I mean, if you could, if you could hide it, you would. You would have done that already. You would have put the, the lamp under the table and, and walked away and acted like, I don't know what happened. What are you talking about? That, that doesn't work. I tried that. Um, and it just gets you in more trouble. But maybe you start figuring out, you start surmising, and you're like, I wonder if, you know, being the oldest, the most responsible, I should be the one to go to grandpa. No way. No, no way. I, I'm like, I, I'm not the one. So we always, we always did this. Um, maybe you didn't. You find the youngest and the cutest one, right? You say to your little so you need to go tell grandpa. And then they're like, grandpa, we're sorry, you know. And, and you're hoping that by doing that, the wrath is going to be subsided. You're hoping that somehow that will, that will, because nobody, when it comes down to it, nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. Is that a fair, fair, no one, everybody's afraid. There's a reason, don't shoot the messenger, you know, it comes out because you don't want to be the person who is the bad, the bad news bearer. And yet Jonah here is called to be the bearer of bad news. And yet that's what God has called Jonah to do, to go to this city and to proclaim to them some, some really bad news. And obviously we've seen Jonah, Jonah was not a big fan of that. But I think it's important for us to remember if there is no bad news, there's, there's not good news. And so we need to talk about the bad news. We need to, the, the Ninevites need to hear that something bad is happening. If they don't hear that something bad is happening, 
there's, there's no good news to be given to them. The same is true when we're, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're talking to our neighbors and to our friends. We may want to steer clear of the bad news, but without the bad news, there's no good news. We were talking this week uh, with some individuals, and it's just how difficult it is sometimes to get your friends lost, to help them to see that they need Jesus Christ because of their sinfulness, because of their, their wickedness, because they're, they're good people, they're religious people, and yet their, their lostness, it's bad news. It's hard for them to hear, and yet we have a responsibility to be sharing both the bad news and the good news because part of the good news of the gospel is the bad news that we face the wrath of God. And so Jonah's called to be this bearer of, of bad news. Now, quick theological review. We've talked about that we as, as humans, we have this inclination to run away from God's leading. God tells us to do, we have the natural inclination to run, run in the opposite direction, and yet God pursues us. God continually pursues the prodigal. He wants the prodigal to come home, and yet he, and he offers this enduring call of repentance. He offers this enduring call of reconciliation, longing to reconcile with us when we, when we run, when we push away from God's leading, because deliverance and salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we've, we've talked about those concepts throughout the last two weeks. And as we, we review the story, for those of you who maybe haven't been able to join us, most of us know the story of Jonah. We know, we know what's happened. Okay, Jonah was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh to preach to this wicked and violent city. That's what he's been called to do. And as he, as he goes to do that, he has to reconcile, wait, do I want to do that? Do I not? We know that Jonah, rather than going and doing what God has commissioned him to do, he flees. He flees from God's leading, and God is going to pursue him. We, we know he sends the storm, and all of that happens. And so Jonah, after a ship and a nap and a storm and a big fish and a squishy cell that he's in for three days and three nights, we know that he eventually, as we, we've left him off, he's on dry land. And he's there, and now he's, he's waiting, and what is going to happen? Now, we, we jump right away to the next verse in chapter 3. But can you, can you picture Jonah for a second? You've just been vomited out of a whale onto dry land, and you're wondering, what, do you go clean up? Do you, you know, are you looking for, do you want sushi? I mean, maybe, <laughs> probably not. Um, probably fish dinner is not going to be the first thing he's going for. You know, what, what is he looking to eat? What is he looking to do? And then we know from the narrative that God is going to, God is going to come to him. And it's here that Jonah experiences the full mercy and the forgiveness of God. That he, in this moment, recognizes that, yes, I've been punished, yes, I've been pursued by God, and yet God still mercifully cares for me. Yes, I have walked away. Yes, I have rebelled. And yet the pursuing God of the prodigal comes forth. And he, we have it here. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. How encouraging. I'm sure that had to be. I know it would be for me. When, it, when forgiveness is extended to me, when mercy has been given to me and I have the opportunity to show to fulfill what I should have done in the first place, how, how wonderful that is to experience. So Jonah gets this second opportunity to participate in God's mission of reconciling his enemies. Now, it's still going to be a battle for Jonah. 
We're going to see that next week. That Jonah's still going to struggle with the fact that I have to go to these Assyrians and do I want these Ninevites to repent or not. But he does follow through. He does, he does go with God. So you look at, look at the next verse. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid to you. This passage is strikingly similar to chapter 1. Look over in chapter 1, verses, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. The word cry in verse 2 there in chapter 1, and the word preach in chapter 3, verse 2, same word. Jonah gets the exact same commission. He, he's told, arise, go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach. Now, there is a little bit of a difference here. And the main difference lies at the end of the verses. In chapter 1, the, the ending pursues, it talks about the reason for the mission. The reason that God is commissioning, notice what it says, because their wickedness has come up before me. Their, their violence, their, their evil that they do every day, it is a stench before me. And God is saying, I, you need to go and you need to preach to them. That is, that is your job. But in chapter 3, we see that it's more focused on the delivering of God's word. He says that I want you to preach unto it and preaching that I bid thee. He says, I want you to specifically speak the words that I give to you. Now, that was the job of a prophet. They were to preach and speak the words that God had given to them. But, but God is making it very clear, I want you to continually speak the words that I continually am giving to you. And so he's, he's going through, and Jonah is now told, hey, when you're there, you're going to preach the words that I continually give to you. So he arises and he goes, and much has happened. Think about it. Between chapter 1 and chapter 3, lots happened in this guy's life. It's only been a few days, potentially, but a lot, there's been a lot learned. And yet God is not done with them. And I find that exciting in my life to know that when I fail, to know that when I struggle and I battle and God picks me up with his mercy and he forgives me of my, my wrongdoings, he's still working on me. He's still working in me. He's still potentially going to be using me. That's why for me, my, my life verse is out of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 13, you have the, the falling of David, the Psalm of David, and David talks about all of his repentance. And the, verse 13 says, then, shall, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. David says, even after all that I have done, God can still use me. He's a God of second chances. That's what God is doing here. He's saying, Jonah, I'm still gonna use you. Yes, you fail. You may be sitting here and say, man, I have fallen so far from where I used to be. God can still use you. God wants to use you. That is the desire. God is the God of second chances, and he wants to be using, using you. Despite past failures, God is still willing to use Jonah. Despite his past failures, there is no mention of reproach for his former disobedience. He doesn't, he doesn't pull out this, well, Jonah, we know that your mode of operation, you know, your MO, the, I want to I lay out the history so that we know that you usually fail and you run away from me, Jonah, he doesn't do that. He just says, all right, arise, go. Do it, do it, go forward. Despite his past failures, 
Jonah was assured that God was going to be with him. That's that idea of he was going to be told in the preaching, I want you to preach what I'm going to continually be giving to you. I'm going to be there with you, Jonah. I'm going to be giving you the words that you need to hear. And so there's this continual dynamic where even though Jonah has failed in the past, God is still present with Jonah in the, in, in the present and, and in the future. Jonah was really being assured here of God's revelation. Jonah, you're going to go, and I'm giving you this mission, and I'm giving you the words that you need to say. You're going to be able to do this. God's done that for us, too. He's given us the words of the gospel. He's given us what doesn't return void. It's the word of God. We can get really nervous in our gospel presentations, but go back to the word of God. It is the word of God that does not. You you might say, well, I don't have the, the really good wisdom and the really good knowledge to be able to share the gospel. And yet Paul reminds us it's not with the cunning words of man's wisdom. It is with the power of the word of God that is going to transform people's lives. Commit some verses to memory and be, be prepared to be able to share the gospel. Use God's revelation in your gospel witness. Because Jonah's reminded here that God is steadfast. Think about you're coming out of a whale. You're wondering what is going to happen. What's going to be next? Is God even care? I mean, what's going to happen? And yet he's there. God is present. God comes back to him and talks with him. He gives him the same commission. God is going to be present with him as he's going through Nineveh because God is consistent. God is steadfast. Through all of our difficulties, through all of our times, through all of the hardships we face, God is the one who is steadfast. When we run from God, it's not God who ran from us, it's we who moved away from him because God is steadfast. And so we continually follow after God who is steadfast, who is consistent, who is not changing. We follow, we follow after him. Now, the question is, what would you do? How many of you, maybe you've seen this program before, What Would You Do? It's on, I think, ABC usually with John Quinones, where they put people in those weird positions. They, you know, have somebody at a, maybe at a restaurant, and the, uh, the, the people at the restaurant, the guy is being really mean to the, the lady sitting across. And like, what are the, what are the patrons going to do? Or they go to a, uh, a, cash, a cashier, and they're checking out, and somebody's checking out with all coins. And you're the person behind them. And the cashier is just, why are you doing this? Why would you give me coins? Don't you have any better money? Don't you? And, and giving this older person a hard time. And then it's all designed around what's the person behind that, that person paying with coins? What are they going to do? How will they respond? Well, the question of the text, really, if you read chapter 3, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach. The question is, Jonah, what are you going to do? What would you do in this situation? Now, we all know what the right thing to do is, right? But Jonah, we, and we jump to verse three, where it says he's gonna arise and go. But did you ever think there may have been a little bit of a pause moment? There, there may have been Jonah like, oh, he still wants me to do this. Oh, what are we gonna do? Am I gonna go? Am I not? I mean, we, we come with a pious bias often. To say, well, Jonah just must have been like, yes, here we go. We're going, to, we're going to go tell people about Jesus. Do we not do the same thing every Sunday? Do we not face the same question nearly every Sunday? Where we are told from God's word what to do, and then we sit and we have to, in the, in the brief moments, 
Am I going to do it? Am I not? When I walk out the door, am I going to live it out? Or am I not? Between verses 2 and 3 is where we often sit in our Christianity. We're told what to do, and we've been told a second time, and maybe given a third opportunity and a fourth opportunity. And we know what we're supposed to do, but the question is, do we do it? And we live between verses 2 and 3 all too often. And yet Jonah looks and says, okay, I'm going to do the right thing this time. Whether Jonah's heart was a whole, wholeheartedly into it or not, it doesn't, we know that, what did he do? So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. Now, we don't know where the fish spit Jonah out. We've, we have no clue. If he did it back at Joppa, where, where all this began, Jonah's got a one-month journey if he goes by camel, if he goes by donkey, or it's going to be a little bit longer. So we don't know, we don't know. I mean, some people think that he got spit out right at Nineveh. I, I don't know how that happens because he would have to like swim, this fish in three days, swim all the way around Africa, all the way back up through the, you know, it, could it happen? Absolutely. Could God have miraculously done that? Could God have miraculously opened a wormhole in the bottom of the Mediterranean that allowed him to come up in the Euphrates River? I don't, it doesn't matter. It really, it really does. We don't, we don't know. All we know is that he's got the ability and the time to have to think about all of this and what he's going to do and is God going to be with. We don't know. All we know is this. He went to Nineveh. He did what he was called to do. And so this time Jonah is going, going to Nineveh and it's this exceedingly great city. We've talked about the size, the diversity of Nineveh. We've talked about how large it is. But this, this passage is where we get that idea of the, the size. Now Nineveh, was an exceeding great, uh, great city of a three days journey. It was an extraordinary city. It was a great city. Historically, it's a great city. Archaeologically, it's a great city. Biblically, it's a great city. Nineveh, Nineveh is large. And it's, it's an impressive metropolis of people. But is it a three day journey across the city? I, I tend to think that seems to be from historical portions what it is. It's a, it's a long walk across the city. But there's also an interesting dynamic where some commentators talk about it would take him three days to go to all the public forums to, to preach the gospel, to preach, to preach his message of repentance. And so as he, as he does that, it's, it's just either way, Jonah's got a big task ahead of him. He's got, a, he's got a long task to go through this city and to be proclaiming. He did not just, the idea of the preaching and going through the city, Jonah didn't just go to one spot and just expect people to come to him. What he did was he would go through the city and he would proclaim and he would look at different areas and he would go out to the people, go through the city and be, be preaching all around the city. And so as Jonah preaches to the city of Nineveh on a continual, the, the idea is a continual basis, he's doing this over and over and over and over again. This is his, this is his commission at this point. He's gonna preach to the city of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his message and you're all wishing that was my message. Eight words out the door, you know. That's, that's all he's preaching. He says, yet three day, or 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it's a, it's a very short message and yet it's very important to understand what's happening here with Jonah. Jonah's acting as an official ambassador of God. God has said, this is what I want you to speak. He knew what the people needed to hear. Now, there may have been more. We're not told that. All we are told is this is what Jonah said. 
And so that's what we, we take it as. So this is what Jonah said. He is the official ambassador of God. He is the one who is going as the mouthpiece of God. He is the one who is taking the message that has been given to the people who need to hear the message. How, how interesting. What are we called? We are ambassadors of the gospel. We are the ones who are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are the ones, as believers, we are called to take the message that God has given to us to the people who need to hear it. You have been just like Jonah. I have been just like Jonah, commissioned to be sharing the message of Jesus Christ. And yet I sit between chat verses two and three. What will I do? Will I, won't I? We are called as ambassadors to be taking this exact message, the message that God declares to people, whether across the street or around the world. We are to proclaim Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to do. It's quite a short message that he delivers here. But our job is to deliver the message of God, not to critique or to revise it. This is so vitally important in our society today. The gospel is being corrupted left and right. We, we don't want to talk about sin because it's going to offend people. We don't want to talk about hell because it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's going to offend people. And yet people need to hear that their sin is going to face the wrath of God and that means hell. That means eternal damnation. Do I like to talk? No, I don't. I don't enjoy, but yet I am called as an ambassador. You are called as an ambassador not to revise the gospel, not to critique it and say, well, I'm just going to make it my type. We, we hear in our society that, you know what? It's, it's all good as long as you believe something. I mean, all these different ways are going to, they're going to get us there anyway. Well, you know, you're right. No, 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 I can't do that. For the Bible tells me that there is one way. There is only through Jesus Christ that we enter into heaven. We're told that we look through the gospel and, you know, hey, you know, if I do enough good things, I'm a really good person. I, I have done this and I've done this. And I have all these good works. Oh, you know what? You'll probably be okay. No, I can't do that. Because the Bible tells us that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It is by the grace of God that we are saved. So we cannot revise, we cannot corrupt, we cannot critique the message that we have been told to share. We are the ambassadors of the gospel. We need to be sharing the gospel with people. It is uncomfortable. It'll make you nervous at times. You will sweat. I still do that when I, when I share the gospel. I get nervous. It happens. And yet, we're called to do it. We are commissioned by God to go out and be his ambassadors, just like Jonah. Jonah goes out. He's going to start preaching. And he says, you are going to be overthrown. Now, overthrown in this passage is key to understand what is, what is happening here. It's a, it's a unique word that has a dual meaning. And we don't, we don't catch it in our English translation. In fact, there's a couple things in this passage where we don't catch in our English translations all the time. 
this word here has two meanings. It means to turn over or to overthrow. It also has the meaning to turn around or to repent. So think about it when Jonah is preaching to these people. He's out there preaching and he's saying, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. They're hearing we're in trouble. There's doom. Doom is coming. They're hearing the words of destruction. And yet, in the words of destruction, the specific word that God wants Jonah to use, there's a hope of mercy if they repent, if they turn around. They're hearing both of these and sort of like, what does he mean here? We know they're hearing destruction by how, how they respond. And yet, we know they sort of catch the repent part because of how they respond. Let's, let's look at that a little bit, of, of how, they, how they respond. So understanding these conflict, this conflict of these two words, are they hearing overthrown, destruction? Are they hearing turn and repent? In 40 days, Nineveh's going to repent, which we know from the passage as we go further, we're going to find out they do. What, what happens here? It, it reminds me of Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18 says this, if a nation against whom I have pronounced, this is God speaking, turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. He's saying if they're, if they're doomed and yet they repent, I will turn from what I was going to do. In fact, he even goes on in like two verses later in, in the passage in Jeremiah 18, he says, if I've said blessings or good things upon them and they turn away from doing the good things and start doing evil, then I'm going to stop giving them the blessings and the, the good things. So it, it really does. God continually responds to his creation. As a creation, as we respond to God, God responds, responds to us. So we have Jonah preaching. What do I, what do I see from this? I, I see that God cares for the Ninevites, the ones who he created in his image. He cares so much, which is why it's so hard. Why, why does the wickedness and the violence is detestable to God. I mean, they were known for being violent toward other human beings. Do you remember? If, if God cares for those made in his image, remember back in Genesis chapter 9 when he, he talks to Noah and he says, if man kills another man, by, his, by man's blood shall, shall he be put to death. And he says, because mankind is made in my image. God finds Ninevite, the Ninevites' actions and attitudes detestable because he cares about those made in his image. God cares for all people. That is something we have to wrestle with. God does not only care for the people who are alike, like us, who think like us, who act like us, who look like us. God cares for all people. God does not, does not uh, pick and choose. He cares for all people that he has made because we're all made in the image of God. So Nineveh was important to God, even if not to Jonah. Nineveh is important to God. And I also see that God cares for those outside his will. And he uses his disciples to bring about reconciliation. He uses us to bring those who are outside of his will back into his will. That's part of the whole process of church discipline. It's really church reconciliation, restoration. That God is using his disciples to go find those who are wayward and say, come back, correct, do what's right. It's not to shame and to chasten. It is to help reconcile. 
It is to help those who are outside of God's will. For those of us to have the gospel, to go and to help people see what God's will is for their life, to help them see and hear the gospel. That is what God calls you and I to be part of. We are part of those people to help with the ministry of reconciliation. So the people respond to Jonah's message. They respond by believing God. We gain this sense here that they trust in the truth, the truth, the veracity, the reliability of the word. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even unto the least. To not be overturned, to not be overthrown, they do what they believe is going to help. They believe God. They proclaim a fast. Notice that they believe, they proclaim, and they put on. There is an inward response that they believe. There is a verbal proclamation that occurs. And then there is an external response that they put on sackcloth. When God changes our lives, when we are truly repentant, there ought to be not just an inward, well, this is just me, I don't want to let anybody else in. No, there's a verbal proclamation, there's an external change that occurs in our life. The fast here, the idea of a fast means to be seeking God's mercy. When we pray and we fast, we're seeking God to mercifully grant us a request, to mercifully intercede in a situation, to mercifully do something. We're, we're seeking God's mercy. Sackcloth was the symbol of repentance, that you would put on this itchy, annoying cloth that would constantly be chafing, but it was a, a sign that was saying, I am repentant. It was consistent throughout the Old Testament. We see it numbers of times where, where they will put on sackcloth as a showing, an outward demonstration of the internal repentance that has happened in their life. And so they do that. This is quite possibly, I think, the greatest miracle in the book, that an entire nation is going to respond to a message of eight words, that they are going to respond to God and say, we are going to follow after this. It really is. It says from the greatest of the people to the least of the people. It's talking about the people. It really, this is a grassroots movement. Usually revival in the Old Testament begins from the king and works its way down. As the king goes, so goes the nation. This one is different this is the people, the greatest of the people to the least of the people. They are the ones who, they, they hear the word, they respond to the word. However, this repentance began with the people, but it made its way to the king. And that's, that's interesting because when you think about a king, about a monarch, about the situation, the king is going to receive the people's response in verses five and six, the end of verse five into verse six. So the people hear it, and it's going to go. And now in verse 6, for the word came unto the king of Nineveh. I have to ask this question. How's the king going to respond? I mean, how do entrenched politicians today respond to grassroots movements? Do they like them? No. It's like, oh, they're going to ruin every, they're going to corrupt everything. They're going to blow up Washington. Maybe that might, anyway. I'm not saying blow up is a bad word. Sorry. That's going to be on YouTube and that's going to get me flagged. Um, <laughs> I did not, anyway, anyway. You get the idea. The entrenched politicians don't like grassroots movements. And so now, how is the king going to respond? The king, the king is not D.C. The king is a, an absolute dictator monarch. And now the people are doing something that I haven't told them to do. 
and not just a few pocket people. This is my nation. This is my entire empire that is here. And that's going to cause him to do what? Is he going to be upset? Is he going to respond? What's he going to do? It says that he's going to humbly follow in the same suit. The king now goes, and it says in verse 6, he arose from his throne, he laid his robes from him, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The most self-reliant individual is going to take this position of self-humility. He arose from his throne, his place of authority, the place where he stood separate from everybody else, and he's going to walk down off of his throne and put himself at the same level of all the people of his empire. And as he's there, he's going to lay aside his ruling robe. We think crown. We often think, you know, from the, our English, you know, historical imperialistic backgrounds, we have the crown that goes on the head, and that crown is the symbol of authority that, that is there. In the Assyrian empires, oftentimes the robe, it was a ruling robe that would be placed upon them, and then they would sit upon their throne. So when the king had his ruling robe on and he was sitting on his throne, he was the absolute. He was the sovereign. He was the one who everybody else relied upon his choices, his decisions. It was his. So now you have the king hearing that Nineveh is going to be overturned, that it's going to be overthrown. And what does he do? He steps down and he takes off his ruling garment. He is humbly relying upon someone other than himself. And he goes further. He goes into covering himself in sackcloth. The same thing, that symbol of repentance. He puts the sackcloth on and he goes even further and he sits in the ashes. The, so the king, who could do whatever he wanted to do, now is finding himself off of his throne in a place of complete humility. A place where he is no longer on the throne and the highest person in the empire now takes the lowliest position of humility. What a picture of repentance. When I am living in sin, it's all about me. When you're living in sin, it's all about you. When repentance occurs, it's no longer me in authority, but it's now me humbly submitting to God's authority. And that's what this king does. He steps off of his throne of I, his throne of me, and he steps down and he allows God to be in control. He steps down into that position. Assyria was known for its pride, for its self-reliance. In fact, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13, it's, it's going to reference Nineveh. This is the city it's talking about. In verse 15, it says, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. That's what Assyria, Nineveh, was known for. And now you have the leader of this nation stepping down humbly. It's a radical picture because repentance is radical. The radical nature of repentance is shown by the people in the king here. Repentance is simply more than sorrow. It's not just I'm sorry. When, when my children were disciplined, it wasn't just I'm sorry, it's a please forgive me for what did I do? Because sorrow, sorrow is only so far. Repentance is a genuine desire to turn 
from your current path, to overturn, to turn over that new leaf so that you're there. And I like what we see here. We see it really is a desperate act by the monarch and by the people. They're going to, to, to sackcloth ashes, to repent. They're going through all of this because they do not want to be overthrown by God. They do not want to be overturned and have their city in complete upheaval. They do what they can. They clearly understood Jonah's message here to be doomed. And they, they understood that Jonah's saying, we're going to be overthrown, so we are going to turn, we are going to repent in order to hopefully persuade God or to, to get God to have mercy upon us. These pagans rejected the idea of fatalism or determinism. Fatalism or determinism is that idea that we are just actors in a big play and we really have no control. It's just being directed by the supernatural powers or we're nothing more than pawns in a cosmic game of chess. And that's just, you know, we really have no control over anything that we do. They rejected that idea, and so should we. We are given the free will of God. God is in control of all he chooses to be in control of, and yet he chooses to give us a free will to make decisions, to, to choose to do things. And so we, we don't just look and go, well, you know, people get saved, people get saved. No, we're called to go out and to share the gospel. We're called to do these things. And they rejected that idea. The king makes a proclamation then in response to the people and to the preaching. He doesn't just sit and say, okay, we're, we're, we're just going to do a little bit. We're not going to do anything. Look at what he does in verses 7 through 9. You're going to see this intensification. He says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let the man and the beast be covered with sackcloth. They, the kings and the nobles here intensify the people's response. The people were just, the people were believing and they were fasting, and they put on sackcloth. But the king says, let's, let's take this to the next, the next level. The fast is expanded here to the animals as well, to the herd nor flock. The fast is to include no drinking of water. Now, we don't know how long this fast occurred. We don't know that it was 40 days. Some people think it was a 40-day fast. That's a long time to go without water, okay? Um, it's going to be, you're, you're not going to do it, okay? You will, you will die, okay? But there is that dynamic there. It could it be just for a short period of time, possibly. But we know, that, we know that there's no drinking of water and that man and beast are to be part of this, to be covered in sackcloth. That sounds foreign to us. That was not foreign to them. They, it was something that was showing away. Think about it in, in a lot of other cultures that were pagan, they would use the animals. The animals would have much more significance. They're much more holy creatures than, than we would give credence to. But these animals, all of these ritual rites are signs of repentance and signs of an overturned life. That's what they're showing. They're trying to demonstrate to God, we're serious about our change. We're serious about what is different in our life. And we want to show that to you, to an extreme God. We want to show you that we have repented, that we have done to the point where we won't even allow our animals. They're going to fast. So in humility and repentance, Nineveh is hoping for compassion and deliverance. They're hoping that as they have overturned everything in their life, they've changed direction, they have repented that God will not overturn their city, that God will not upheave Nineveh. They are going with a great direction. There's this call for the people and the beasts to cry out to God. Now, I don't know about you, but does that sound a little like, how in the world are the beasts going to 
to cry out to God. I mean, we, we sort of look at it. Now, we have in our home, we have two bunnies. Um, it was a moment of weakness in my life, but that's okay. Um, and one of our bunnies is named Mochi. Mo- this is not a picture of Mochi, but very similar to, to Mochi. Mochi has, she's definitely a whirly, okay? Because if she does not get fed on time, she has a fit. And she thumps. I don't know if you've ever heard a bunny thump or not, but man, it is like, and it's, it's, it's that loud or louder. We can hear it through our whole entire house. If it's 30 minutes, if she hears, if she hears us walking around upstairs and she hasn't got her food, thump, 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 and it's like, mm. I'm like, I haven't even got my coffee yet, okay, stop. And, and so the bunny, the bunny is down there thumping, and you can hear it. Now, I don't think that's exactly the beasts that are being talked about here. But could you imagine a herd of cattle not being allowed to eat for a day, two, three? The pigs, because you're not in a Jewish culture, not being given slop for two, three, four days. The, the, any animals, the, the, the horses, the camels, all of these animals across the entire city not being allowed to eat, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear them crying out. You're going to hear them bellowing. And what does it become? I believe it comes this constant reminder to the people to be praying that it's a continual sign to God that the people were serious about their turning. It wasn't just a little fly-by-night foxhole decision. The people were trying to demonstrate to God that, God, we are serious about our lives for you. We are serious about the change in direction that we have taken. And God, we want you to hear that. We want you to know that. And the king has this interesting insight. He wants the people to move simply beyond prayer. Did you catch what he says here? He says, let neither man nor beast flock taste the water. Verse 8, but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. Their prayer to God is that we have turned, we have changed, we are repenting. And yet the king looks and tells them that this needs to impact your life as well. It's not just enough to pray a prayer. He says your, pr- your life should match your prayer. He's looking at them and saying, you're telling this God, you're telling God that you have repented, that we have turned from, their, from our wickedness. And he's saying, well then, if that's the case, then let that not be your lifestyle. He says, let it be gone from your life. Our prayers and our lives should be matching up. Because repentance is more than just praying for forgiveness. It's a conscious active effort on our part to change through the power of God. Whatever that battle is, whatever it is that you are facing that you know is, is not in God's leading in your life and you naturally run away from it and you're saying, I need to repent of that. I need to turn. What is it? You say, God, I'm sorry for that. Well, then, then there's the effort then that goes in God through your power. I want to change. I need your help to do this differently because repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is not just praying a prayer. 
It, it requires action. It requires the turning around. And he says, let every one of them turn from his evil ways and from the violence. The word evil ways here is the, the idea of the way is your day-to-day -day walk. And the word, the word evil has this idea of that which is condemned by the law in your conscience. So he's looking and saying, those things that are illegal, those things that your conscience is telling you because the spirit of God is within you, telling you not to do, he's like, don't let that be part of your evil ways. The king looks at him and says, stop doing these things that are illegal. Stop doing these things that you know in your conscience, murdering this person, doing harm to them as the Assyrians were known to do. Don't, don't do it. He goes on with the idea of violence. Violence was that physical harm performed by one human to another. And so he looks at them and he says, you're telling God that you're changed. Well, then we need to, as a nation, we need to show that. We as a people need to show that. The king has some really amazing insights into how people are to live. Not, not, not too shabby for a pagan king that he understands that you don't, just, you don't just pray a prayer, you don't just do, there is a change that occurs, occurs in our life. The king and the people were hoping that through their genuine repentance, God's wrath was going to be stayed. But is it genuine? That's, that's one of the questions that comes up. Did they, did they really, did an entire nation really repent? Look what the king says in verse nine. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? He's saying, who knows? Is the God of Jonah truly a compassionate God? Well, I guess we're gonna find out. The king, the king has no previous knowledge of Jehovah, but he's looking and saying, I guess we're gonna find out because we're, we are truly repenting and we are truly showing him that there is a difference in our life. The intended desire of the people is to overturn their life so that they would not, God would not overturn their city. We've talked about that. Like others before him, the king recognizes that salvation comes from the Lord. He's like, the deliverance that's going to occur, it's not going to be on our part. It's not going to be on this Jonah guy's part. The, the deliverance, we're going to find out if, if God, if Elohim, he uses the word Elohim, if Elohim is going to be this true and compassionate God, we're going to find out. We, we don't know. Without asking for further signs, the people believe the message of God. And again, it goes back to that Matthew 12 passage. Where, where Jesus is talking about to the Pharisees. He's like, you're asking for sign after sign after sign. You know what? The people in Nineveh are going to stand in judgment of you because they didn't even ask for a sign. They heard the simple message and they believed it, but you want a sign after a sign after a sign. And so these people just in simple faith trusted in God. And we find out in the final chapter, final verse of the chapter that their repentance is genuine. Their repentance is genuine. We can be skeptical about that all we want, we can say the whole city, really, you know, was this real repentance? Were they sincere? We, you know, we look and go, wow, if we see one person, this is an entire nation of people. Is it really sincere? Notice that it is God who saw. It says, and God saw their works. So if you want to question their genuine repentance, you take it up with God. Okay, that one's on you. I'm looking and saying, okay, it says that God saw that and he declares that the people that they turned from their evil way, that they, that they did that, that they've turned from their daily evil patterns. God saw their work of humble repentance and that they turned from their wickedness. I'm not arguing with God. You can if you want to, that's up to you. But he says, he says that there. God's response then in verse 10 is seen to all the people. What is he going to do? 
And this is the, the I call it the sticky wicket of the passage. Um, it says, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them. If you're reading your King James, that's what it says. Does anybody have a, anybody twitch when you hear that? That God did what? Repented of what? Evil. Does, that, that should like grate a little bit. Like what's, wait, what's going on here? That God repented of evil. God saw the sincerity and repentance and he has compassion on the people. Look at what happens. Chapter three begins with the compassion toward Jonah. It ends with compassion at the end. God's judgment always implies that possibility of mercy. Let's talk about, for a second, does God repent? Does God really, really repent? Does he have to, does he have to repent? To understand this, we need to have a vocab lesson. I know you're like, can we, can we just wrap up because I can't do a vocab lesson right now. It's, it's uh, Pastor Kim's been doing the, the series on love and on Sunday evenings. And in the Greek, we have different words for love. Our English word is love. But in Greek, we have eros and phileo and agape and storge, all these different words, but we just translate it in English, love. And they, they all have different nuances and meanings. The same thing happens in this passage with the idea of repent. There's a couple words that are occurred. We've already talked about the one, but the word is hapak. It is to turn or to overturn. That's the one that Jonah preaches when he says Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the word that he uses. And it's often translated to repent or to overthrow. Um, and and those, are, those are the two words that are used there. Another word that's used in the, in the Hebrew is the word sub. It means to change the course of direction, to be going one way and to turn the other way, to completely repent, to change everything about, to turn over that complete new leaf. And then there's a word, it's called naham. Naham means this. It means to have compassion or to relent, to hold back. That is the word that when we see Naham, it means we have an internal sorrow. When you have an internal sorrow as a human, you often will repent. When God has eternal sorrow, when he feels sorrow or compassion, God relents. You're like, well, what does that word relent mean? It's like when I play dodgeball with, with the second graders, I don't throw it as hard as I can. Okay, I hold it back. I, 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 I withhold all of my energy coming out, I, I pull back. All three of these words are used in this passage. And they're used in different ways. If you, if you would allow me the moment for you to, to see the Arthur Victor Worley III translation of verses 9 and 10 to try and help us put this together. Like, how does it, how does it work? Verse 9 when you look at verse 9, it says, who can tell if God will turn and repent? It says, who knows if God will, the word is sub, change his course of action, and the, the king says, naham, that he will relent, that he will hold back what we deserve. And will he sub, will he change the course of action from his fierce anger so that we don't perish? And then he goes on in verse 10, and God saw their works that they, he uses the word sub, that they would change their course of direction. Okay, so what is that saying here? God saw their works that the people changed their course of direction from the evil way. And so God, Naham, he relented of, and the word evil that's used there can be also used of disaster. 
that God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. So God is, God is looking and saying, because they have made this decision to turn, I will withhold. I will show compassion. I will show mercy. I will withhold the wrath that is, that is against them. This is consistent with God's nature. We know that God does not sin, so he has no evil to repent of. God has always said that unconfessed sin will be justly punished. He's like, if it is not confessed, it will be punished. But God also says that repentance leads to forgiveness. So if a person is, has repented, they will receive forgiveness. Think of, it, think of it in light of the cross, in light of salvation, and how, how this works. Every person is condemned already because of our sin. You and I are condemned because of our sinfulness. God's wrath upon us will be meted out. It is due to us. It is, it is inevitable for every single human on this planet that God's wrath is to come upon us. However, God in his compassion and his love sends Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. So when a person repents of their sinfulness and they turn to Christ for, for repentance, God relents. He withholds the wrath that is due. The wrath of God has been satisfied through Jesus Christ and we no longer face the consequence of sin and hell. That is why the gospel is so vitally important because every single person we come across, we assume they're facing that eternal death, that eternal wrath of God. They need to turn from that sin. So if a person does not repent and accept Christ as their savior, then the just consequences that God has given will be meted out. They will occur. So when God relents, we see that in salvation all the time. That it is, this is what is going to happen. So for Nineveh, they are going to be overthrown. But because they have repented, God relents. God holds back the just consequences that they deserved. So it's not that God repented from evil. He didn't do anything wrong. He is withholding the disaster that he said was going to occur, occur to Nineveh, just like those people with the gospel. Some final thoughts to think about as we, as we wrap up here this morning. As I, as I look through the passage, God's character and promises never change. They don't change at all. He was consistent all the way through from chapter one through chapter three. God is consistent. His promises are consistent. His promises of faithfulness to those who repent of their sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It is present. It is consistent. It is always there. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are reminded in this passage of the seriousness of sin and the certainty of judgment. God will judge sin. And if sin is not repented, that sin will be meted out. If that sin is repented, God will relent. God will pull back some of those, some of those consequences. We ought to be thankful. This one for me is just, it's huge. Thankful every time we are afforded the opportunity to once again do what God requires. How many times do I fail? How many times do I live between verses two and three and don't enact myself upon verse two? What has God said to do? Will I do it? Well, I don't, maybe. 
I need to do, and I'm thankful for the many times that God and others have afforded me through their forgiveness and through their mercy to live out day by day what I'm required to do. God longs not for the destruction of sinners, but for the redemption of all creation. This is the heartbeat of God. Is it ours? God longs not for Nineveh to be destroyed. He longs for Nineveh to repent, for them to be redeemed, to be reconciled with him. Is that our heartbeat for those around us, for our coworkers, for our family, that we see them? And if it really is, then what should it compel us to do? To tell, to share, to pray for them. God's compassionate heart is always sensitive to the cries of mercy. When the people cry out in sackcloth and ashes, when the king humbles himself, God hears those cries and he hears for us the same. The cries of mercy. You say, I'm too far gone. There's too many things I've done. There's no way that God can still use me. That is not biblically true. God desires and wants to hear your cries of mercy, your cries of repentance, and he is compassionate and he is faithful to hear them. And then lastly, because of that, when the people repent, then God relents. I think it's so vital in this, Pat, we see it throughout the passage, that when people repent, God withholds, God forgives, God is merciful. As we look at this passage, I pray that we would have not just the desire to repent, but that when we repent, that it would really change our lives. That we would live for what God desires us to be living for. That we would not just live between verses two and three, but that we would enact ourselves, that we would live out what Christ has called us to do. To be compassionate, to be ambassadors, to share the gospel so that all the nations may rejoice, so that all the nations may be glad, so that the people around us and our family members hear of the gospel. But it starts first with us getting right with God, with us repenting, making sure we are good with God, and then we go forward sharing the goodness of God. So Father God, I pray that you would help us as we just studied through this passage, Lord, to live for you, Lord, in those areas in our lives maybe where we need to repent, I pray that you would help us to repent. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you do, even in your faithfulness, hold back the, the consequences that so many times we deserve, Lord. We thank you that you have relented in our lives so many times. So, Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your love and your mercy, your grace, your compassion. But Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted, but we would go this week looking and praying for opportunities to share with others the goodness and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Help it to impact our lives, for it's in your name we pray. Amen.